continue in Matthew's gospel, so if you have a Bible I want to open up, I'll have the text up on the screen, um, but if you have a Bible I want to open up to Matthew chapter 3 as we move through Matthew's gospel. So thankful for the word of God. All right, so the point today, and it's kind of twofold here, really, this is kind of Matthew's bigger point moving into the point for today is to experience the blessings of the king, right? We've established that Jesus Christ is the rightful king through lineage, the genealogy, and then by recognition, the wise men came and recognized him as king, right? Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus Christ is the king of kings. He's going to finish this gospel that way with Jesus crucified and above his head a placard which says, king of the Jews. And so Matthew wants us to receive this king. He wants us to obey this king. He wants us to submit and follow this king. To, to experience the blessings of the king in his kingdom, your heart must be repentant. So we need to talk about repentance today. Because the way of salvation is prepared through repentance. The way of salvation is prepared through repentance. So today... Kind of the three theological concepts we're going to work through are repentance, kingdom, and confession. Repentance, kingdom, and confession. And so I'm going to pray. And if, you, if you're like me, you have stubborn sins. You just kind of hang on, right? It's like you just can't get rid of it. Like, uh, yeah. Um, and, and, and maybe it's gotten the best of you lately. And maybe... Um, today you need to have some fresh repentance. You need to confess that to God. And so I'm going to pray now and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and reveal the sins that you're not dealing with. And, and then let's be thankful that God will, with a humble heart, he will deal with those sins. So let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Father, I, myself, um, I, you, you know my heart, you know the struggles I face, and I would imagine other people in this room um, have sin struggles that are just there that beleaguer them, that seem to pop back up again and again, and sometimes it may be even um, we submit to the flesh and not to the Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would speak into our hearts through your word, revealing sin, that we would confess that sin with a repentant heart, Lord, knowing that you are faithful and just, and you will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that washes away our sins. In his name we pray, amen. All right, so we're going to walk through the text and make some points together. And the first thing we're going to see is a ministry, or it's the ministry, and it's the ministry of John the Baptist, right? Most of you are familiar with the baptizer if you watch The Chosen. And he's kind of a strange and odd fellow. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Well, Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us anything about the earlier life of, of John the Baptist. Luke's gospel does, right? Luke's gospel begins with Elizabeth and Zechariah and the birth of John the Baptist. And we're told a little bit about the ministry that John the Baptist is going to have in Luke's gospel right here in Luke chapter 1, as the angel is speaking to Zechariah. 
He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will give, you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, how do we know that he was filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born, right? He leapt in Elizabeth's womb when Elizabeth and Mary saw each other before the birth of Christ, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many, this is important, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. So the ESV here, that word turn is turn away from sin and idolatry to God and the Messiah. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. We'll talk about that in a little bit, Elijah the Tishbite. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's so important, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John came to prepare the hearts and the minds of the Jews to receive the Messiah of Jesus Christ. And so in those days, right, in those days is the beginning of the text there. What does that mean? It's a, it's, a, it's a locator for us, right? As far as Jesus' life is concerned, in Matthew's gospel, we have his birth, okay, and then all of a sudden he's going to be showing up for his baptism, right? Luke tells us about Jesus going into the temple. And I would just warn you to stick with what the scriptures say. If you read extra biblical writings and it's talking about all these miracles that Jesus did um, that weren't in the Bible, I would probably... Just kind of, you know, maybe find that an interesting story. I think God has what he wants us to have about the life of Jesus. Anything beyond that is, is pure speculation. And so we have John preaching in the wilderness of Judea. We'll talk, Judea. We'll talk about that in a minute. But then we have, we have this message of the ministry, the message of John the Baptist. And he says, repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so we're dealing with this issue of repentance. So notice John doesn't say, believe in the coming Messiah. The kingdom is here or near. He says, repent. And the fact of the matter is, is that faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You don't get one without the other. Scripture is clear on that. I don't have time today to go through all the passages that link faith and repentance together. The demand for repentance and faith run parallel. Genuine repentance prepares the heart for the true gospel. Faith in the gospel makes the repentance evangelical. Because you have a changed heart, a changed life, others will know about that. Repentance without faith leads to despair, right? Repentance without faith is morality. It is like, okay, I'm going to obey some rules so that, that God will like me better. And you're going to fail, and so you will go into despair. And it could be that some of you this morning are trying out morality. Okay, I understand that there's all these rules that I need to follow and I've messed up and I want to please God. Kind of like the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we'll see in a minute. And we're told clearly that leads to despair because you're going to fail and you don't have the answer for your failure. Only Jesus does. Faith without repentance from sin becomes presumption, right? You're presuming on, it's cheap grace. Faith without repentance is cheap grace. I'm saved by grace through faith. I'm a child of God. I've been adopted into the family. For you hardcore 
you know, Cal- I'm, I'm, I'm elect, I'm chosen, right? I, nothing's gonna, I can't lose my salvation. Nothing's going to separate me from the love of God in Christ. And you presume upon the grace of God. You're not living any differently. Let's be weary of that, leery of that. And so John's message is repent. The kingdom of heaven has come near. So we're going to be talking about the kingdom all the way through Matthew's gospel. I'm just going to touch on it briefly here. We're going to come back again and again to this concept of the kingdom. He says here the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are used the same way. It's the same understanding. And depending about what you believe about the kingdom, it might mean something different to you. But when we look at the gospel, specifically of Matthew, concerning the kingdom of heaven, it's wherever Jesus is. If the king is present, the kingdom is near, right? It's spiritual, right? The kingdom has begun already in your heart, right? It's got Jesus Christ is Lord in your heart. He's ruling over your life. You are submitting to his kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done. There is this, an element in which spiritually it is present. I believe that. There is this future, not yet, this millennial kingdom that I believe will be a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth where He will rule with a rod of iron. All nations and kings will come worshiping Him, presenting gifts to Him. can't wait to go back to Jerusalem and see it again. In the kingdom, that's a not yet. And then we have the eternal kingdom, this kingdom of God in heaven. And so we'll, we'll work through that. So uh, D.A. Carson says this, there is a constant theme in Matthew's Gospel. The kingdom came with Jesus and his preaching of miracles. It came with his death and resurrection and it will come at the end of the age. Well, as Matthew did last week, okay, he presents John to us and he wants to show us how John fulfills Old Testament prophecy. So he's going to go back and reach into Isaiah And he's going to present John's ministry to us in the text in verse 3. He says, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. Now all four of the Gospels, the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John's Gospel all refer to Isaiah 40 when they're talking about John the Baptist. So I would say this is an important text for us. And so the quotation, and again, whenever, if if you... Uh, read Matthew, and then you go back into the Old Testament or look at the prophet that he's quoting. Matthew really loosely quotes. He's giving us the meaning of the text. Sam referred to that earlier. A voice of one crying or calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for Him. And so the baptizer is presented as the one who is preparing the way for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We're kind of familiar with this. How many of you have tried to get on the interstate in Detroit when some dignitary is coming into town? And they have, literally, the owner ramps shut off up and down I-94 as they come from the airport end. You can't get on or off, right? I would think probably Nathan, um, when somebody comes into town, they prepare the way, like, you probably have to go maybe sit on a roof someplace, right? And watch out, and, you know, he's a sniper, right? So you, you don't want to mess with the dignitary when they come. So the, the, the officials prepare the way for the Messiah. And certainly there is an element of that in John the Baptist's ministry. 
But really, he's preparing the hearts of those who will receive the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to bring a radical message in. He's going to, put, he's going to bring new, new wine. Is he, you can't put this new wine in the old wineskins. It's going to burst. He's going to turn the world upside down with the Sermon on the Mount. And only the contrite, the poor in spirit, will be able to receive this message. Your heart has to be prepared. And John the Baptist came to prepare the hearts of the people who would hear the Messiah, hear the message of the Messiah. One commentator says this, John sought to remove obstacles of stubborn unbelief from the hearts and minds of sinners. He wants to remove self-righteousness from the minds of sinners. The way of the Lord is the way of repentance, of turning from sin to righteousness, and of turning spiritual paths that are crooked into ones that are straight and are holy. This is the ministry of John the Baptist, to make the way for the message of the Messiah. And so we've talked about John. Let's learn a little bit more about the man, John the Baptist. kind of a peculiar fellow. I mean, everything we read about him is like, this guy was kind of... You know, if he was wanting to be like a successful church planner, you know, kind of a guy that... John, John the Baptist wasn't wearing skinny jeans. He didn't have tattoos. He didn't have his hair all done. You know, he wasn't wearing the Carhartt, you know. Sorry, Jason. No, no. <laughs> he took his car off. <laughs> I mean, he just... He, he wasn't trying to impress. He didn't move to the, you know, the, the, the cutting edge of the suburbs so that he could plan a church where growth is going to happen and, and he would be successful. That's not what John the Baptist did. He was countercultural. He was radical. And the way he dressed was radical, right? John's clothes were made of camel's hair. And he had a leather belt around his waist. But he also ate weird things, right? His food was locusts. Now, locusts, you know, Scripture actually commends the eating of locusts. I was reading an article about this when I was studying, and, and, and some guy was writing an article that he heard somebody say, well, we should just eat a lot of locusts, and that'll, like, cut down on the swarms of locusts, you know, that happen around the world. He's like, you'll never do it. <laughs> when a swarm comes, it comes. You cannot eat your way out of a swarm of locusts. But evidently, I mean, people eat them all the time. I have not. I've not tasted locusts. But I could go for the wild honey, right? You think of honey that's like in this little white box, you know, they come out in this big white suit on and they, they have this smoker going, right? And this is wild honey. It's like growing up in the tree. There's supposed to be all kinds of health benefits. I mean, he was really kind of the first kind of, he was into non-GMO organic honey, right? He was like, he wanted to, you know, he was, he was a tree hugger. So he was different. Everything about John the Baptist screamed different. D.A. Carson says this. He says, even the food and the dress of John preached. Right? He preached through the way that he's like, I look different. Something different on the scene. And I love the way in, in the chosen. I'm going to bring it up again. Jesus says what? Get used to different. <laughs> John the Baptist is different. But I think Scripture looked forward to John the Baptist, right? I already mentioned this in the spirit and power of Elijah, right? We read in, in 1 Kings, or 2 Kings, I'm sorry, about Elijah the Tishbite. He had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, yeah, that was Elijah the Tishbite. 
The scriptures also look forward to John the Baptist in his ministry in Malachi chapter 4, right? See, I will send the prophet Elijah before you. That great and dead, dreadful day of the Lord comes. We'll talk about that day in just a minute. So we've seen the ministry of John the Baptist. We've seen the man. And now we're going to see the masses that come out to see John the Baptist. The mass of people that come to hear his message. The scripture says this in verse 5. The people went out to him from Jerusalem. They left the city. So all the city folk came. They decided they'd take a road trip, leave their condo in the city, and head out into the country. From Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. So as we look at a map, and I can't go forward for some reason. There we go. Now we're forward. Okay, so you see that blue line right in the middle? That is the Jordan River. Really, it kind of cuts Israel somewhat in half. It's kind of on the eastern third. Starts up in Mount Hermon, right? The snowfall, snowfall on Mount Hermon begins to melt, and it comes down in different tributaries, and it you know, forms a river. And it travels all the way down from Mount Hermon into the Sea of Galilee, which travels down through uh, um, Israel and empties down into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is dead because it doesn't empty anywhere. Right? I've also have circled there. I have um, Jerusalem there and um, Nazareth and Galilee. You see those on the map. Those are places we need to remember. But this Jordan River um, comes down from Mount Hermon there. And, and in some places it looks like the, you know, the picture where there's a lot of water. In some places it looks like a muddy stream, right? Um, it, it just depends on where you are. But if you ever visit Jerusalem and they take you to the spot where people are getting baptized, this is pretty commercialized, right? So you're visiting Israel and they take you to this place for baptism. Some people go there just to get baptized in the Jordan River. And it's like, you, it's like you're coming to an amusement park here, right? There's this, you walk up and they have this place and you shuffle them some shekels, you know, and they, they even have the right white robe for you if you want to put the white robe on and you walk down this. They have a ramp for wheelchairs if they want to put the wheelchair down into the Jordan River. And it's deep enough so that people can, what, go under the water, right? Um, but it's, it's quite an impressive little outfit. Were you there, Dorian? Did you say, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? This is all resonating to you, right? Very, very uh, familiar. So the Jordan River, and it was, you know, John the Baptist, like when he, he chose this area, this area of Judea, um, it wasn't, it's not the nicest area. It's like, like the Badlands. It's like just not a... A very inhabited area. He was out in the wilderness. But people still came to him. They were attracted to him. His message. And maybe they thought, well, this, let's just curious. Let's go see this guy. He's a weird guy, you know. He's making all the officials mad. Let's go hear what he has to say. The masses came, and they came what? Confessing their sins. Confessing their sins. So now we need to talk about this concept of confessing. Why were they confessing their sins? What is confession? I think most of you know what confession is, but really, let me just, maybe just help you with your thinking if you think it's something, what it's not. Uh, it's interesting in the, in the Greek language, and I don't like to bring up Greek, but it's, uh, we know the word homo, which means same, and there's the word lageo for word, so it's literally, it's same word. It is to say the same thing about your sin, to say the same words about your sin that God says about your sin. It's to agree with God about your sin. Right? God's word determines what sin is. God's word is him. He's determined right from wrong. 
And we need to understand it and agree with that. And sometimes we, you know, have this own idea of reality and we create our own reality, reality where we're God and we create our own rules. But God graciously kind of works on us and says, uh, no, you're living by the wrong standard. Here's the right standard. And you come to the conclusion through the power of the Holy Spirit that you are wrong and you need to agree with God about your sin. This morning we read Psalm 32. The psalmist was living in unconfessed sin. And there is, uh, it is sad when people live in unconfessed sin. It actually causes physical problems. Many, many people are on medications because they're living in unconfessed sin. They don't agree with God about their sin. They have mental disorders because they're living in unconfessed sin. Anxiety because they're living in unconfessed sin. In Proverbs, God's word is never going to be wrong, okay? It's always going to be validated. It's always true. Proverbs says this, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. How many of you want to prosper? Raise your hand. I want to prosper. Scripture's clear. If you conceal your sin, you're not going to prosper. And I'm not talking about having a bag full of money. I'm talking about having peace, shalom, wholeness that God wants you to have, wellness of being, peace with Him. But the one who confesses and renounces, that, that renouncing, that renunciation is repentance. The one who confesses and repents finds what? God is so merciful because he says, turn to me, repent. Anytime you see in the Old Testament, turn to me, he's saying, look, you're going the wrong way. You're going after idols in your heart. You're going after that which you think which will satisfy, but it will only lead you to death. Turn from that, turn to me, and I will save you. But the turning has to happen. That repentance has to happen first. You have to say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin and be broken and turn back to God. Because He is God and there is no other. So when we look at the concept of confession, it begins with a contrite heart. I'm a sinner. It recognizes the wrong done and the offended. It refuses to cover up or create excuses. Oh, aren't we good at excusing our sin? I'm okay on this because really I've had all these things happen in my life. I know God understands. I know His Word says this, but I've had all these circumstances that have happened in my life, and and God understands, and it's okay for me to continue in this sin, even though God says it's wrong because I have different circumstances than everybody else. That's, That's creating excuses. I love the beauty of the Proverbs passage. Finds what? Mercy. God is so merciful. God is so merciful. I mean, what parent, if your kid is sinned and they're living in unconfessed sin, if your kid comes contritely and they're broken over their sin and they confess it, what parent's not going to say, I love you. I want to bless you. You think God is any less than that? No. God wants to hear and he will give mercy. The one who confesses and renounces their sin finds mercy. I'm so thankful for 1 John 1, 9, aren't you? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and He will cleanse us of all unrighteousness, right? All unrighteousness. So, as we consider John and his baptism, right, they were confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, we don't want to be confused and think that somehow by going into the water and going under the water, that the actual physical act of the water was removing their sins. 
You know, uh, the Ganges River in, in India is a perfect example of that. Millions of people go into this nasty, dirty river because they believe that by simply by going into the water, their sins are taken away. No, it's, it's, it's through repentance, the confession of the sins, turning from that sin. And this is simply saying, this is an outward expression of, hey, I was wrong. I sinned against the creator of the universe. I want to live differently. Turn. And baptism expresses that to the world. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, of those that came out to see John the Baptist, some of them were grossly mistaken. There were some very mistaken visitors to see John out in the wilderness. And John was getting some traction. He probably had little, in Jerusalem, there were probably people who had probably putting flyers up on the side of buildings, right? Come see. Come see John the Baptizer, the guy in camel's hair. Somehow the message that John was preaching was getting back to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Right? Well, from what we know about John and other places in the Gospels, he, he, he wasn't concerned about offending anybody. He didn't care who he offended. He didn't care if he offended King Herod. And people heard about his message. In verse 7, But when he saw... John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing. So we're going to go back to the Pharisees and Sadducees again and again as we go through Matthew's Gospel. They are the, you know, like the, they are the enemies against Christ throughout um, Matthew's Gospel. The Pharisees were those who, um, uh, they were spiritual teachers. Um, they believed in, they preached the, the traditions uh, concerning God's law, they were big on tradition, 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 right? You've seen um, fiddle on the roof. Tradition! That was the Pharisees. The Sadducees were kind of like the, uh, the aristocracy, kind of the ruling class. They were more concerned with, okay, what's in the text, right? They didn't have time to study the Mishnah, right? They were just like, okay, well, we read, we read Exodus, and it says this. We're going to stick with this. They ruled over the temple. But they were against John the Baptist. And they came out to where he was baptizing, the scriptures say. And they were disagreeable. John the Baptist wasn't fooled when these guys came out to see him out in the wilderness and said, you brood of vipers! If you're trying to you know, build up the crowd, get the church plant going, see, see big donors come into the church, you don't say this to people who are coming into the church. When was the last time you heard Joel Olstein call out people and say, you brood of vipers? He's never going to do it. But John the Baptist called it as he seen it. He called it as he, called it as he saw it. <laughs> you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Another thing that happened when I visited Israel, we were traveling from one site to another. It was a hot, hot day. Uh, the whole time we were there was like in the, in the 90s. It was so hot. And, and there was a spontaneous brush fire on the side of the hill in, uh, in Israel. And this happens. This is an actual picture. You know, this is recent. Uh, but these, these fires happen just like they happen in California. And when these fires take place, all the animals, all the, the wildlife that are in that area, they start running out. And certainly the snakes or the vipers, the poisonous snakes, which vipers are, they're fleeing from that fire. And John says, who warned you? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He says, look, you guys. You guys are phony, baloney, good times in rock and roll. He says, you need to produce fruit keeping with repentance. 
John wasn't fooled by their self-righteousness and all these traditions that they had. He wasn't fooled by all this temple worship that they had going on. He says, look, I want to see fruit of repentance. Well, you might ask yourself, what does that mean? What is fruit of repentance? Well, interestingly, in Luke's account of this, so Luke, obviously the synoptic gospels are going to have kind of the same story. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we've been through this before. They will have the same narrative, but some will have less and some will have more. Mark tends to have less. Luke tends to be a little bit more verbose. And here, he tells us more. Because the crowd hears him. And they say, okay, you're telling us to bear fruit of repentance. What does it look like? Bananas, apples, oranges? What does it look like? Tell me, what does it look like? Jesus, and John the Baptist says this. Actually, the crowd says, what should we do then? What does this fruit look like? And John says, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required, he told them. Then some of the soldiers asked him, and what should we do? So he had a pretty wide, diverse crowd, didn't he? He says, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. Right? This is similar to the message that Jesus is going to preach. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart's not right. I want to prepare your heart for the Messiah. But there was deception among the crowd, right? These Pharisees and Sadducees, they were self-deceived. And John knew that. And so he says in verse 9, he says, he says, Do not think you can say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. Right? That's the person who says, ah, you know what? You know, I know my life may look kind of rough right now. I know I'm doing things that I shouldn't do. You know, I'm doing this and that. But, but hey, you know what? When I was eight years old, I was baptized. I've been going to a church all my life. This church preaches the Bible, man. This pastor's good. You know, they have great programs in this church. And I, I, I'm a part of a church. There are people who live that way. The same old adage that I always, or the same adage, the same saying that I say often with people is, you know, being in church makes you a Christian no more than being in McDonald's makes you a hamburger. All right? It just doesn't go together. They were like, they thought, we have this spiritual heritage, right? Paul recounts this spiritual heritage in Romans 9 and Romans 11. He says, look, you guys have all these spiritual blessings. You have the law, you have the covenants, you have the temple, you have all these things, but you've rejected the Messiah. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, you guys, they're old wineskins. You are set in this way, and you think that your traditions are going to save you. You think that somehow you can be righteous enough. In your mind, you think somehow your good's going to outweigh the bad, and God will welcome you into his presence. No. Just because you are, it's because your last name is Bernstein, you have a spiritual heritage. I shouldn't probably have said that, but because you're a Jew. Just because you're a Jew does not mean that you are true Israel. It does not mean that you are of the family of God. Jesus and John understood 
kind of looking at here with Jesus. But John understood that the Pharisees and Sadducees were trusting in what? Their religious heritage, their religiosity, all the things that they did as far as temple worship is concerned, and their righteousness through right behavior. We have every box checked. We've tied down to the last little piece of dill. Who are you to say that we're not right with God? Jesus understood. John understood. The Pharisees were seeking after morality, not a Messiah. They were following rules. They weren't wanting to follow the Messiah. This is a danger for us in our culture now. I'm telling you, the way I look at what happens in in popular culture, and if you look at the right, okay, if you look at the right, and I'm not going to stray too far from this, but here's the deal. In politics, you know, just because somehow some of what you believe according to politics lines up with Scripture does not mean that you're a Christian. Just because, you know, just because a lot of Christians are on the right doesn't mean that all of them are Christians. Just because a political candidate is anti-abortion doesn't mean they're a Christian. Right? And so what I'm seeing in our culture is morality with the absence of a Messiah. Just because what you believe lines up with Scripture does not mean you are a Christian necessarily. So we can be no different. And John is worried for them. He wants to plead with them. He says the axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown at the fire. The idea of coming at the root with the axe means we're getting rid of this thing. There is no more chances. Once you cut the root out, that plant's not coming back. He says, look, I know your destiny. If you keep believing in your self-righteousness that somehow you don't need God, you don't need his Messiah, you can somehow get yourself right with God, you're going to fail. You'll be cut down at the root and what? Thrown into the fire. Thrown into the fire. Well, now we're introduced to the Messiah. The last part of the passage, we're going to go through this fairly quickly. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Right? John the Baptist is saying, look, a slave's job is to take the sandals off their master. I'm not even worthy to do the job of a slave. I'm not worthy to take Jesus Messiah's sandals off. He will baptize with spirit, the Holy Spirit, and fire. So, Holy Spirit and fire don't mean two separate things. It's referring to the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. Powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. So John, in his message to them, as he warns them, he is pointing towards his, this is a big word here, eschatological. We'll talk about this as we go through Matthew. The eschaton is the end. So eschatological means of the end times. And so John's message here is referring to both here and now and what's going to happen in the end. Because he says, in the end, he says, his winnowing fork, the winnowing fork of Jesus Christ, is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn. So the picture is of of a farmer out threshing wheat, right? So this is wheat. So you have the stalk, all the leaves, and you have the fruit at the top. And so the wheat, or this whatever grain it is, it gets dried. And they take it 
to the threshing floor. And the person with this big pitchfork throws the, the wheat or the grain, he throws it up into the air and the wind is blowing and it blows away all that you don't want. It blows away the stem, the stalk, the leaves, all the dry dead stuff that's no good and all the good grain falls to the ground. The good grain is gathered up and it's stored away in a barn. All the stuff that blows away is only good to be thrown into the fire, Jesus says. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The grain is the fruit. If you don't have fruit, then you are the chaff. And you will be tossed up in the air, blown away, gathered up, and thrown into the fire. He's talking about the end. All those who trust in their own works, their self-righteousness, you are like the chaff. Only good to be burned in the fire. And so John is warning them. The unquenchable fire. That word unquenchable is the word we get asbestos from. It's an interesting study. Judgment is coming, John the Baptist says, and it ends with fire for all those who are trusting in their own righteousness. All those who are unrepentant, all those who are not confessing their sins, all those who are rejecting the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so the Messiah is presented to us by John the Baptist. Now quickly, the points to ponder. The points to ponder. I think I have four here. And I think Scripture is clear. I've said this, that salvation, there's no salvation apart from repentance. None. And what scares me is when I, when I talk to people, like people I work with, and their lives are screaming, I'm choosing my own way, I'm the Lord of my own destiny, I'm the captain of my own soul. When their lives scream, I'm choosing my own way, and yet they say, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and he rose from the dead. They, 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 they've got these two, two they've been compartmentalized. They haven't repented of their sins because if they'd repented of their sins, then their lives would be different. I'm not saying that morality saves you, but it's an indicator of a transformed heart through repentance. Right? Well, it's just as clear in the Gospels. Right? Because John says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus in Matthew, when he begins his ministry, says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. They have the same ministry. Paul, when he's given his ministry through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ who speaks to him, right? He's talking to King Agrippa. Peter replied, oh, I'm sorry, this is Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Paul says, he says, I preached everywhere that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Not one of those says, hey, you know what? Here's the Romans road. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. Those are true things. Those are, those are facts that you have to believe to be saved. But unless you have a contrite, broken heart, you've confessed your sins, you're turning from your sins, you have a broken, repentant heart, it's that's not saving, that is not saving faith. It's only saving faith when repentance and faith are coupled together. We have too many deceived Christians, quote-unquote Christians, in the United States. It breaks my heart to hear pastors who never preach repentance. John the Baptist preached it. Jesus preached it. Peter preached it. Paul preached it. Faith without works is dead. James preached it. There is no salvation apart from repentance. Point number two, Jesus offers transformation through repentance. This is so important, right? 
He talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, right? But he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So this really is the distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Because Jesus came and he says, look, I'm going to take your heart of stone out and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And he says, I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you so that you can obey my commands. So we come in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ. Our obedience comes from Christ in us, as we learned in the first service. Christ in us leads to obedience. The person apart from Christ, they see themselves, they're like, I need to make things better so that God accepts me, so other people like me. And that's not salvation. Jesus offers transformation through repentance, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus isn't offering morality, friends. He's offering a transformed heart. He's not offering right politics to you. He's offering you a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The third point, we've got four, remember? Those who ignore or refuse to repent will face the fire of hell. I think it's pretty clear. Right? John the Baptist is clear. The axe is already at the root of the tree. Hell is real. It's not some state of mind. It's interesting, and I say this often when I talk about what I know about unbelievers. Like when I talk to anybody, I know that they know there's a God, that God exists, there is right from wrong, that there is an eternity, and that they will be judged one day. And that there is an afterlife. And, and scripture tells us what the afterlife is. It's either one or two places. Don't repent, we're told. Then the afterlife for you is hell. Lastly, like John the Baptist, the church must prepare the way of the Lord. We, we need to prepare the way of the Lord by the way we live. If we're living a repentant life, if we're bearing fruit of repentance, then we're adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? The message of the gospel is what saves people. It's not your morality. But who wants to drink water from a dirty glass? People don't want to hear the message of the gospel if you're not living out the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a church, we must prepare the way for others to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ by the way we live, by bearing the fruit of repentance. Because the way of salvation is prepared through repentance. So, we read Psalm 32 this morning. David's psalm of confession. Right, we consider David's life and his failures as a person. How he committed adultery and then had the husband of the woman with which he committed adultery, he had him killed. He concealed that. He concealed that sin. And it was tearing him apart. Psalm 51 tells us about David crying out to God, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Psalm 32 tells us that it's through confession. The joy of that salvation is given back to us. Confession and repentance. So maybe this morning you're carrying around sin. If Jesus didn't die for you to carry sin around, to be miserable. He came to set you free. 
But maybe you need to be set, be, maybe need to be set free from that. And 1 John 1, 9, I claim this all the time, right? If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just. It means He will. He's faithful and just. And He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song together. Thank you for being patient. I know it's a lot. It's like I just hit you guys with a fire hose. But I'm going I'm to pray, and, and I want you to deal with your own heart before God. And then we'll sing together. Father, we thank you.